The text for the sermon this evening is from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. In those verses, the Apostle Paul, however, has his inspired mind on Genesis chapter 15. And we're going to begin tonight by reading that chapter, Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. And he said unto him, I am the Lord that brought thee out of Ur of the Chaldees to give thee this land to inherit it. And he said, Lord God, whereby shall I know that I shall inherit it? And he said unto him, Take me an heifer of three years old, and a she-goat of three years old, and a ram of three years old, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he took unto him all these, and divided them in the midst, and laid each piece one against another, but the birds divided he not. And when the fowls came down upon the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance. And thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation... They shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it came to pass that when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp that passed between those pieces. In the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Cadmonites and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Turn with me now to the New Testament and Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, remember that the Apostle Paul was given by God to establish churches in Galatia on his first missionary journey. Shortly after he returned home, those churches were troubled by people that we now call Judaizers who were teaching that the gospel that Paul taught was not the true gospel, but were justified instead by faith and works. Galatians 3, let's read a few verses from the chapter and then our text. Let's begin at verse 5. Galatians 3, verse 5. 
He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the Gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Now go down to verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And now our text is verses 15 through 18. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was four hundred and thirty years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Beloved of God, in chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul gives eight unique, distinct arguments for the truth of justification by faith alone. Tonight, in our text, we take up the fourth of those eight. This fourth one, the Apostle derives from the nature of the covenant The covenant of God is gracious. And if the covenant, the bigger thing, is gracious, then justification, which is a blessing of that covenant, is also utterly gracious. In the previous two arguments for justification by faith alone, the apostle has been focused narrowly on justification itself as a blessing granted to Abraham and his seed. He's showing that justification is by faith alone from the life of Abraham. Abraham was blessed by faith. And one of those blessings that Abraham received was the gift of righteousness imputed to him, also by faith. Therefore, Abraham's seed, who are blessed with Abraham, are blessed also with this blessing of justification by faith. But for the moment, with those previous arguments, the apostle left the idea of the covenant off to the side. It was focused on that one blessing of the covenant of justification. But now in our text, he brings the covenant to the foreground. And this is the only time in the book of Galatians that the covenant is explicitly mentioned. And he's doing that this way to say those blessings of the covenant, including justification, are as it were blessings in the basket of the covenant of grace. And because now we can find in the sacred scriptures the Old Testament, 
that this covenant is also gracious and was received by Abraham by faith alone and is ours by faith alone too. That means also that this justification is by faith alone. If the whole is by faith alone, then the parts are by faith alone too. Part of the reason why the Apostle is broadening out his argument now and is bringing the covenant onto the foreground is because he anticipates an objection from the Judaizers. It goes something like this. Okay, Paul, you got us. Abraham's justified by faith alone. We see that. We see that from Genesis chapter 15. But what you fail to recognize, Paul, is that later on, at the time of Moses and at Mount Sinai, God added conditions to His covenant in the giving of the law there. He added all of those laws as conditions for His covenant and therefore conditions also for justification. You should know that, Paul. You studied at the feet of Gamaliel, did you not? He really made a new covenant at the time of Moses. A new covenant that disannulled this covenant with Abraham. And you have to understand that, Paul, if you're going to understand that justification is not by faith alone as it was for Abraham, but now it's by faith plus works. The covenant is still this way today. And you ought to be teaching the people that it is that way. And that the blessings of the covenant are that way. Justification too. And the Apostle's answer to this, beloved, is so significant for understanding the covenant and for understanding how to read our Bibles. As in defense of justification by faith alone, the Apostle teaches us of the one changeless covenant of God. The theme tonight is God's changeless covenant. Let's notice first, made with Abraham. Second, not annulled by Moses. And third, the implications of this, three of them, for us. God's changeless covenant, made with Abraham, not annulled by Moses, and the implications for us. The Apostle speaks of the covenant in verse 17. The covenant that was confirmed before of God. The Apostle is referring specifically to the covenant as established with Abraham, who has been the subject since verse 6. Established and confirmed of God to Abraham in Genesis 15. God's covenant as revealed and established with Abraham in Genesis 15 is a sovereignly established relationship of structured fellowship between God as friend sovereign and Abraham as friend servant where the entirety of this covenant is appointed from God's side alone in Jesus Christ. The very word for covenant that the Apostle uses here in our text to describe what's happening in Genesis 15 indicates that. It's the word diatheke, which means a one-sided appointment. And the importance of that word is seen when you understand that the Holy Spirit and Paul had another word at their disposal 
that could have been used to describe the covenant of God. The word suntheke, which means a two-sided covenant. Sun means with. A covenant with, as in two making an agreement with one another. That word indicates a kind of covenant where two would come together and come to some form of agreement and then make that agreement with each other. If that was the word that the Apostle used, then it would be correct to view God's covenant with His people as one where He sits down with them and He makes some kind of agreement with them, gives them conditions to fulfill and obligations. And they make this agreement with one another and carry on. But that's not the word that is used here. The word is used to indicate this one-sided sovereign appointment of God where God brings His people of His own sovereign power into a bond of fellowship with Himself. The Greek word the Apostle uses here is also a translation of the Old Testament Hebrew word for covenant, which means bond or clasp. To hold one close to oneself. So that if you put the two ideas together, what the Apostle Paul is telling us here is that a gracious God has Himself of His own sovereignty come to a people who have no relationship with Him, who can have no relationship with Him, and who can't even see that having a relationship with Him would be the greatest thing for them in all the world. And He sovereignly binds them to Himself. He he clasps them unto Himself, giving to them a life with Himself in this bond. So that the greatest thing about this covenant is that in this covenant, He gives them Himself. It is a bond between them and Him. Or He, as it were, gives them as an inheritance His own self to walk with them and to talk with them, to relate with them. Right at the beginning of Genesis 15, where this covenant is confirmed with Abraham, God makes this clear that this is the great benefit of the covenant. Verse 1, After these things the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Abraham, this is my covenant with you, that I give you myself. I am your great reward. Abraham, you get to have me in a bond of love and fellowship with you. And then when you read that verse in the context, it really pops out. After these things, after what things? The things in chapter 14. In chapter 14, Abram goes to war with Chedorlaomer in order to rescue Lot. And after the war is over, the king of Sodom tries to give to Abraham a a reward for his work in defending Sodom. In order to rescue Lot, Abram had to defend Sodom. And the king comes out with all of his riches and said, here, Abram, I want to give you all this as a reward for what you did for the kingdom of Sodom. And Abram refuses. He won't take a single penny from these pagans. And then comes the beginning of chapter 15. And God says to Abram, you did right, Abram. You don't need all of that. I am your reward. You get me, and that's enough for you. 
And I'm your shield too. You don't need all of those riches in order to purchase a shield about you. I am your shield about you. Wherever you go, I have given myself over to you in the covenant of grace so that you have me, the God of all the earth, as a shield about you. Are you afraid, child of God? Here's your answer. God has given you Himself as a shield about you in His covenant. What He said to Abram, He says to you, fear not. I am your shield. Wherever you are, whatever circumstances of your life, I will sovereignly carry out My goodwill and purpose for you. Are you lonely? And here is your answer. God in His covenant gives you Himself. That the God of all the earth calls Himself your God as though you are His and He is yours. My own possession. The God of all the earth. That was the great promise of the covenant made with Abram too. That God would give Himself over to Abram as His friend. It's a promise that runs like a thread throughout the Scriptures as the great promise of the covenant of grace and the covenant formula. I will be a God to you and you will be My people. You get to have Me, the God of all the earth. God's covenant does include promises. At its heart, it is this bond of fellowship that He establishes with Himself. But in that bond, He declares promises to His people. It's like a marriage And the heart of that marriage is this bond of fellowship. But in that bond, promises are declared. And God does this in His bond with Abram too. Many promises. He tells Abram, I will establish this bond not only with you, Abram, but with also your seed after you in the line of generations. He promises to Abram, I'll give you this land, the land of Canaan, a picture of heaven. And your seed, as many as the sand on the seashore, will fill it. He promises to give Abram the righteousness of justification. That's one of the promises of the covenant. A righteousness for Abram by faith. He promises to give him holiness for sanctification. He promises to be with him in everything. Give him himself as the great promise. It sounds a whole lot like promises that a husband would make to a wife out of the bond that he has with her. I'll get us a land my dear, and a place to live in. I'll give you children and I'll take care of our children. Give them what they need. I'll be a head over you who's for you and grants you what you stand in need of in our life together. And chiefly this, I promise you, that I'll give you myself so that I am your shield and your exceeding great reward in this marriage. And just like a husband's promises, in his marriage are oaths or vows. So God's promises to Abram in this covenant are oaths. Hebrews 6, verses 13 and 14 that comments on Genesis 15 tells us that for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. He swore an oath. And because there was no greater name by which God could swear in the making of His promises to Abram, He swore by Himself, saying, if I don't carry this out, 
then I am not God. He put His own godness on the line. So does He give Himself to Abram and to us in the covenant of grace. And when God keeps these promises, which He does all history long in His covenant, when He keeps these promises, that's the content of the blessings of the covenant. The blessings of the covenant are all the promises fulfilled. That's the inheritance of the covenant. Verse 18 of Galatians 3, For if the inheritance be of the law, it's no more of promise, but God gave it by promise. Paul has blessings. He has promises. He has inheritance running through here. But it's all referring to the same thing. The promises that are fulfilled are the blessings of the covenant and are the inheritance of the covenant. Chief of which is God Himself given to us. And now, All of this, all of it, God says and shows to Abram is dependent upon me and me alone, Abram. God showed that to Abram in the confirmation of this covenant to which Paul refers in Genesis 15. Verse 17, Paul refers to it, and this I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God. He's talking about that ritual that God had Abram go through in his vision that confirmed, that ratified his covenant and all of his promises to Abram that showed how true it was that it was, to use New Testament language, a diatheke and not a theke. Abraham was getting a little bit antsy in Genesis 15. He knew that almost all the promises that God made to him were dependent upon the fulfillment of one of those promises that God would give to him a son. And here he is 100 years old and his wife Sarah is 90 years old and they have no child of promise. He knew that the land promise was dependent upon his son. How could he have a seed that inherits the land of Canaan if there's no seed to inherit it? How could God carry on this bond of fellowship with His seed after Him if He has no seed after Him? How could the Messiah come from His line of generations if there is no line of generations? And so God comes to Abram in Genesis 15 and says, I'm your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abram doesn't miss a beat. Yeah, but what will you give me, God, seeing I go childless? I don't understand how all of this is going to work. I don't have a child and you're running out of time here, God. What are you going to do? Are you going to make Eliezer the child of promise by some process of adoption or something? Or what's going to happen here? You said Ishmael was not the child of promise. Do you want to rethink that decision? At least he's here. I'm a hundred years old and Sarah is 90. And God says, settle down. Settle down, Abraham. Settle down. I promised you that you would have a seed, a child of promise, and you shall. I will make it come to pass. This is my covenant that I establish with you. My promise is to keep, not yours. It depends upon me. Will you doubt me? Even though you're good as dead, will you doubt me yet? Then he confirmed this covenant and its promises. By having Abram divide up these animals, cut them in two and divide them in two sides so that the blood of those animals ran into the middle of a path. He took the birds. didn't divide those birds in half, but put 
A dead bird on this side, dead bird on that side, all the blood from these animals running into the middle. Something that Abraham himself recognized. This is the way they made soonthekes between two parties. They would come together and say, you do this, and I'll do this. And yes, I'll do this, if you do this. And instead of shaking hands to confirm that covenant between them, or signing a contract like we would do, they would both together walk through that blood path in the middle of those animals, thereby swearing to the other, I will keep what I said to you, I will do, even unto death, even to the shedding of my blood, like these animals' blood has been shed. And God puts Abraham to sleep and He shows him in a vision this process. Except it's radically different from anything Abraham is expecting. For it is not Abraham and God who walk through this blood path, but it's God and God. Behold, a smoking furnace and a burning lamp, a clay oven with fire in it, and a burning lamp or torch on fire. Both fire pictures of God, God Himself, alone going through the pieces. And Abraham got the point. The entirety of this covenant, all of His promises, are dependent upon Him. Not Him and me. Not part me and part Him. But Him. It was all Him. I am God. And this is My covenant I establish with you. And now is when Paul anticipates the yeah, but. Yeah, but, Paul, that's entirely irrelevant. You have to fast forward 430 years, Paul, into the book of Exodus, where God establishes a new covenant. And there, He gives all of these laws from Mount Sinai. Dietary laws. Eat this. Don't eat this. Feast laws. About all the celebrations of the feast. All the things that make us distinctively Jewish, Paul. And all of those things you don't understand, Paul, were added as conditions to the covenant. You have to do this in order now for the covenant to come to pass. So that the covenant with Abraham, though it may have been gracious, though maybe you're right, Paul, it was unconditional and unilateral and based on God alone, now at the time of Moses, there's a different covenant that is bilateral where Israel has to work its way in obedience to all of these laws into fellowship with God, which she have God Himself given to her in this bond, then she must work for it. And on the basis of her work, she must arrive at the continuation of this covenant. And justification to righteousness is going to come by obedience to all these laws. Moses, Paul, disannuls Abraham. I have to point out now that the way these Judaizers who are objecting to Paul read their Bibles is eerily similar to the way that dispensationalists 
read their Bibles. Saying that when you read your Bible, starting from Genesis and going through, anytime you get to a place where in the Bible it says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you, that right there, there's a break. And there's an entirely new covenant that's being formed there. And everything that comes before that is now done. It's over. It doesn't apply any longer. And the dispensationalists say there's seven times in the Bible where that happens, where you get to a place where it says, Behold, I establish my covenant with you. And every single one of those seven places, whatever comes before it, is now done away with doesn't stand any longer. And so, you get to Exodus in chapter 19. And God says, I will establish my covenant. Well, that means that's a covenant with Abraham that came before that. That's gone now. That doesn't apply any longer. And now, we have a new covenant here. Let me read to you the comments of the father of dispensationalism, C.I. Schofield, in this regard. Schofield produced a study Bible written in English, that spread throughout the United States of America in the early 1900s. It had a great effect for dispensationalism, an effect that is still felt in American Christianity today. Quote, Genesis 15, verse 18, made a great change, speaking of the covenant with Abraham now. They, God's people, became distinctively the heirs of promise. That covenant is wholly gracious and unconditional. The descendants of Abraham had but to abide in their own land to inherit every blessing. And now this. Still quoting. That dispensation of promise ended when Israel rashly accepted the law in Exodus 19, verse 8. Grace had prepared a deliverer, had provided a sacrifice for the guilty, and by divine power brought them out of bondage. But at Sinai, they exchanged grace for law, end quote. Look what he's saying. He's saying that yes, in the time of Abraham, everything was gracious. But those foolish Israelites, when God brought them to Mount Sinai, God offered them a, a new covenant. He kind of tricked them and said, this covenant is now going to be on the basis of their law-keeping. And those foolish Israelites, they accepted that covenant And now everything that was there with Abraham is done away with now. And now all the covenant is based on the obedience of people. And even if dispensationalism says that there are some things about the covenant that remain steady throughout the Old Testament, it's an entirely new arrangement based on works and not grace. It's the exact same thing that the Judaizers were saying. They're both arguing this way. The covenant with Moses annuls the covenant with Abraham. We're justified by works now. Not even reading the covenant with Moses correctly. And Paul's inspired response is absolutely not. When God came to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai, He wasn't disannulling the covenant with Abraham. It's still the same covenant. Even the law that was given there to Israel at Mount Sinai is the same law that was there at the time of Abraham. Yes, there's different applications of it because Israel is a nation now. 
There's different case laws that apply to the people. But Abraham had the law of God too. Genesis 17 verse 1. Walk before me and be thou perfect. And the point of God adding the law written down at Mount Sinai was not to say now the covenant is based upon your works. Works are still done out of gratitude as ever they were. There's other reasons why God gave the law at Mount Sinai written down, codified, and Paul's going to get them in the next verses. But the promise to Abraham still stands as ever it did. For God's covenant is inviolable, unbreakable. If a man's covenant, once confirmed, cannot be broken, cannot be annulled, it cannot have stipulations added to it, then certainly God's can't. Verse 15 of Galatians 3. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. That is, I'm speaking about something among men now. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Even a covenant among men, a theke, cannot be disannulled. Once you, once you sign on the dotted line for that mortgage... You can't go back and ask for the price to be lowered. Or the seller can't say, the price is going to be higher now. Or you can't say, oh, you've got to fix this first. You've signed. The covenant has been confirmed. This, this soon theke. Well, if that's true among men, how much more so God's covenant that is not a soon theke, but a dia theke is entirely His sovereign arrangement and establishment dependent upon Him to the point where he swears oaths on the basis of his own divine Godhead. Not even he can come then when his covenant is confirmed and say, well now, we're going to add conditions to this covenant. Now it's entirely different. Or now it's done away and this will be new. It's an everlasting covenant. You can't read your Bible that way. He made promises. He swore an oath by his own Godhead and confirmed all that He said in the blood of Jesus Christ. Already back there, in Genesis 15, confirmed it in the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 17, the covenant was confirmed before of God in Christ. How could it have been in Christ way back there in Genesis 15? Paul, he doesn't come all the way till the New Testament. It was. What was God saying, beloved, when He passed in that smoking furnace, in that burning lamp, through that blood path? What's He saying? About when Abraham cries out to God, but God, I'm a sinner. How can You establish such a covenant with me? I'm not holy like Thou art holy. It's impossible for a holy God to be with me like this, to give Himself to me. And Thou art a pure God. I see it in the fire that You pictured Yourself as. Thou art of purer eyes than to even behold evil. And you told me to walk before you and be perfect, but I can't be perfect, God. How many times did Abraham lie about his wife, Sarah? I failed thee, God. Oh, 
when God walked through that path, He was saying to Abram, Abram, I will keep this. All of this. Even if I must myself die and shed my blood for it to remain. And now you understand why He had to come down and enflesh Himself Take upon himself our sins that would break and destroy the covenant. And himself suffer the curse for them that this covenant might remain established in him. It was confirmed before of God in Christ. And the coming of the law at Mount Sinai 430 years later does not change that. That covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law does not disannul. The giving of the law was not God saying, Now to be blessed, the blessings of the covenant of grace, you're on your own. It's not me, it's you. And Paul would say to the Judaizers and to us, It was still Christ at Sinai. Don't you see that? What did he give in addition to the law upon that mount? He also gave the plans for the tabernacle and for the altar and for the sacrifices. It's still the same covenant grounded upon the same blood of Jesus Christ. And this is why when he gave that law at Mount Sinai in Exodus 20, it did not say, Obey this, and on the ground of your obedience to this, I will be your God. But it said, I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and now in love and gratitude to me, obey this law. That's why at the time of Moses, we read that it was the covenant with Abraham brought again to God's mind that led him to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. Exodus 2, verse 24, And God heard their groanings, And God remembered His covenant with Abraham and looked upon the children of Israel. Leviticus 26, Then will I remember My covenant with Abraham. I will remember and I will remember the land. It was not disannulled. It's still there. Whatever God's purpose was in codifying the law at Sinai, it was not to change His covenant. He still showed that covenant as ever it was with promises graciously given grounded upon the blood in Jesus Christ. And there's a covenant for those who are covered by that blood. Wherever they are in the history of the world, Old Testament or New, the time of Moses does not change what the covenant is, and it doesn't change who receives that covenant either. That's the Apostle's point in verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Jesus Christ. And here let's add verse 29. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is making an exegetical point based on the collective noun used in the Old Testament promised Abraham, a noun that can be either singular or plural. And Paul is saying, It's both. It's singular. That Christ is the true seed. Not many seeds 
plural, but one seed, Jesus Christ, as it was already in Genesis 3.15. Put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed, singular, and it or he shall bruise thy head, singular. It's Christ. The promise is made to Christ first of all. Christ is the head of this covenant. And then, to all those who are in Him. If you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Who are members of this covenant? Old Testament and new. It's those who are in Jesus Christ. Paul saying, Judaizers, it never was simply about being Jewish. It was about Christ and union with Him at the time of Abraham, at the time of Moses, and now the covenant is one and the members of that covenant are one in Jesus Christ. When you read your Bibles, beloved, don't read your Bibles like the Judaizers. Don't read it like the dispensationalists. Read it like Paul. The covenant of God is one throughout. The essence of that covenant is one. A structured bond of fellowship. Adam walks and talks with God in the cool of the evening in the garden. Abraham is God's friend, Isaiah 48. Israel is called my son. Marriage is Christ and the church. And in the end, the tabernacle of God is with men. One relationship throughout. It grows. It develops. More and more about it is revealed from Genesis to Revelation. It's unfolded like you roll out a rug and you see the the print on that rug more and more glorious as it's unfolded. But it's the same covenant throughout. There is throughout the whole thing the same aspects. There is law to point out sin, to drive to Christ, to be a rule of gratitude. There's promises that are grounded in Christ. There is the blood that's shed to be the ground of that covenant. There is grace that comes in Jesus Christ and secures that covenant for God's people. There's faith that's given to God's people whereby they embrace this covenant. There is holiness as the path along which they walk in this covenant. There's chastisement to bring them back into that way when they walk in disobedience to God. That's the first Important implication of this marvelous text. His covenant is one covenant. Second, it's unconditional. How can we speak of conditions now after understanding this passage where God takes responsibility for all of it upon Himself? The covenant revealed to Abraham is still God's covenant. For if the inheritance, Paul says in verse 18, if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. For inheriting the covenant and its benefits, its promises, including justification, if it comes by on the basis of obedience to the law, And it's not by promise anymore. To promise something is to give it graciously, not depending upon anything in that person, but doing something in order to be the recipient of it is opposed to a promise. In the conditional covenant, it's still based on what we do so that it's not actually a promise that comes to pass. But what can we do, beloved, when it's all dependent Upon him. 
He is the start, middle, and finish of it. Secured everything in the blood of Jesus Christ. To be sure, we're called to faith. We're called to obedience. But that comes too as part of the promise fulfilled to us, effective to us in Jesus Christ. And third, finally, the implication of all of this, and now this is the one that you must carry home in your soul tonight, is that this covenant and all of its promises written on the pages of the inspired Word of God to you declares to you, member of that covenant, These promises God makes to you in Jesus Christ cannot be disannulled by the law. You see, there can be a Judaizing tendency in all of us. And even if we would not read our Bibles like a dispensationalist or like a Judaizer, we can still be tempted to read our own history of redemption this way. But it starts with Abraham. It's all of grace in the beginning. And then it becomes Moses. And dependent upon me, and works, and law. Grace gets us in through the front door. But if we want to get all the way into the bedroom at the back, that's dependent upon us and works. Justification is by grace. But sanctification and preservation, that's on the basis of our works. Of course, the law guides us in sanctification. And Paul's going to get to that in chapter 5. And His grace produces in us willing efforts at obedience. Sanctification and preservation are not without works. The works are themselves sanctification and preservation. But this whole bond that He establishes with us from beginning to end, start to finish, is gracious. It's all Him. Utterly Him. And this is so real, beloved. All our life long, and in the final closing days of our life too, what would you do? If an elderly saint called you like one called me recently, And said to me on the phone, I'm struggling with doubts and fears that I'm going to hell. You see, beloved, when we get older and the body and the mind start to weaken, the devil attacks. Mercilessly he attacks. Relentlessly he attacks. There's no pity. He attacks and attacks and attacks so that a woman like this cries out on the phone, I'm going to hell. I know I'm going to hell. I can almost see the fires around me. Why do you think you're going to hell? Because I don't praise God enough in my life. Oh, my dear. You will never praise God enough in your life. I will never praise God enough in my life. God came down in human flesh as He swore He would when he walked through that blood path, he took upon himself all of our lack of praises to this good God. And he praised him enough in his life. 
worshiping His Father in love for Him with every fiber of His being. And your failure, my dear, to meet the good law that calls you to praise Him continually cannot disannul the promise that was made to you in Him. Rest in Him. And stand firm upon this rock. And only then will praises flow forth out of you to Him anyway. Here are the sweet waters of the Gospel, beloved. And grace to drink. This is a sermon on the covenant. But it's a sermon on the covenant that has been established with you. Take it and have peace. Amen. Father, bless Thy Word to our hearing and strengthen our faith and give us peace in our soul and worship in our hearts to this good God in whose name we pray, amen.